Today's show is brought to you by mParticle. It's the only customer data platform built to address modern data challenges. For most brands today, customer interactions are spread across lots of connected devices, and that makes it tough to create optimal experiences and drive the right marketing outcomes. That's why brands like Spotify, Venmo, and Airbnb use mParticle. It lets them unify customer data into a single customer view. Then they can easily integrate that data into any marketing or analytics platform with no additional engineering time required. The result is more personalized customer experiences on websites and in apps, as well as more relevant ads across all channels and partners. Visit mparticle.com to learn about how mparticle can help your business unify the customer experience and accelerate growth. Today's show is sponsored by GoCD, a continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. GoCD helps your team release software more frequently, consistently, and reliably. Download and use GoCD for free. Visit gocd.org slash recode. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the editor of a magazine about whiny Fox News anchors called Hannity Fair, but in my spare time, (laughs) I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today in the red chair, I am pleased to have Tina Brown, the former editor of Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, The Daily Beast, and so much more. Tatler, everything. She has a new book out that I absolutely adore called The Vanity Fair Diaries, 1983 to 1992. It is a fantastic read. It has surprised me how much I like it. Not that you're not a great writer, Tina, but welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you, Cara. That's it's, good to hear. Yeah, I just, I was so surprised by this book. I'm not surprised by a lot of things, I'll be honest with you. And I want to talk about you may doing it, but let's pe- people who don't know you, like you've been more of a techie than most media people. So I want to sort of give people your background and how you got to where you got. So why don't we just do a very quick biography of Tina Brown? Okay, so I began in London, went to Oxford, uh, got discovered very early. Yeah, you were like the enfant terrible. I was the enfant terrible in Oxford. Age 25, I get the editorship of Tatler. Which, explain what Tatler is. Tatler is a a kind of social magazine. It was like a Mm -hmm. sort of town and country, as it were, for London, except it had a great pedigree. It went back 270 years Mm -hmm. when it it was founded. By the time I took it over, it was a kind of ailing, shiny sheet. Mm -hmm. And I was given uh, what every 25-year-old wants, which is sort of my own playpen, which Mm -hmm. is this magazine, because no one else wanted to edit it. And it It was was slightly naughty, right? It was Well, I made it naughty. It wasn't naughty when I took it over. It was for sort of decaying debutantes. Uh, uh, Then it was bought by a real estate guy. And he asked everybody in town to edit it. They all said no, because why would anybody want to edit that? And somebody said to him, why don't you go for youth? And I was writing pieces that were rather fun and iconoclastic, you know, all over the place. And and he, he came and asked me. And I was 25. I leapt at it because I felt what fun it would be to have my own little game. And right. I had right. all my friends. Why did you leap at it? It was really, to me, that's really... I leapt at it because I wanted my own show. You mm-hmm. know, I was already finding, even at 25 that freelance writers are at the whim of the people who assign sure, them. Sure. And frequently you'd get, well, I don't think that's a great idea. And I mm-hmm. began to get irritated. I thought, right. I, I know it's a good idea. Right. And if you're an editor, you get to decide if it's a good idea. It doesn't right. matter if it's a small show. Yeah. So I had, you know, I had all my kind of smart young Turk friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started to put out this kind of very insurgent attitude uh, heavy magazine. And making fun, poking making fun. Making fun, poking fun. We took the upper classes who were supposed to be the establishment of the magazine and really made them irreverent. Plus, 
I also had uh, the biggest social story of the century to cover, which was the rise of Princess Diana. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we covered that like CNN covered O.J. Simpson. Yep. You know, we were just all over that story. Mm -hmm. We knew her. I'd met her. My staff had met her because I was 25. She was 20. You know, it was like there was a lot of people on our team who sort of knew the world. London is a small place. London is a small place. So that really launched Tatler and made us, you know, we we went from 10, hot. We are hot and buzzy. We went from 10,000 to 100,000. Bought by Condé Nast, uh, signed new house, you know, fell in love with Tatler. He thought it was great. Mm -hmm. Came to London, sort of shopped and found us and bought us. And that meant we were part of the mighty Condé Nast. And when they launched Vanity Fair, which brought it back from the dead, then they decided, let's ask the young Turk from London to come in and edit right. it. Right. And they had had, they had launched Vanity Fair. Correct. Let, let's yes. go into the diaries, really. So they had launched Vanity Fair and had an editor that wasn't working out. It wasn't getting very good buzz. Yeah. It, it had, it was, it Wait, launched was a huge, one. it launched was a the huge, first editor? Uh, Richard Locke. Richard Locke and, and then Leo Very Lerman. smart guy who'd been editor of the New York Book Review, uh, Times Book Review, but he wasn't anyone who'd ever edited a magazine before. And they had all this huge hype that it was coming. They had posters of John Irving in his underpants sort of saying, no contest. And they had pieces saying it was going to be the best magazine anyone had ever read. Disastrous amount of hype. Right. Declaring victory before. Declaring victory, vast budget. No one had ever heard such a budget. So they and Vanity Fair, to go back, was another one of these magazines that was sort of the society Well, magazine. Vanity Fair in its heyday was this sort of cultural, high-toned, mm-hmm. witty magazine that was edited by a great editor, Frank Crowninshield, mm-hmm. who was the first to publish, you know, Cubism in America mm-hmm. and published, uh, you know, Claire Booth Luce and Dorothy Parker. And, you know, it was a very good... It was glittery. a hot book. It was a hot book, sort of just predating The New Yorker, which came along and ate its lunch, actually. But mm-hmm. it was pre-New Yorker. That was the world. The smart set. The smart set. Actually, yes, that was the title of its rival, as a matter of fact. And so the smart set all read it. So they wanted to bring back a new version of Vanity Fair, which would be, you know, probably less brittle than the smart set Mm -hmm. era one, but uh, one that was really going to combine the sort of gravitas of the New Yorker with the smart set of the past. Mm -hmm. But they produced a turkey instead. And and it was a disastrous turkey. Editor fired. Then they bring in uh, a sort of uh, old, you know, well, he wasn't supposed to be interim. He was the features editor of Vogue, who'd been in the company for 40 years, a kind of grand old, uh, you know, culture maven. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, they'd asked me to come over and be a consultant from London. Right, right. Because I had, you know, they, they thought, let's bring Which her you in. hesitated at. I hesitated tremendously, but I came. And actually, it was useful to do because I realized once I'd been there a few months that Leo Lerman, the editor, could not do it. I, right. I realized that he was as big a fiasco as his predecessor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was old and pretentious and the whole thing was just not working mm-hmm. and I felt I could do it. I mean, it helped to sharpen my sense that I could do right. it when I realized right. that he couldn't. Right. But I thought I'd blown it because I'd said kind of no, yes, no, yes and, you know, I was only a consultant. Mm-hmm. So they asked if I would stay. They said, you know, will you come and stay and essentially band-aid this editor and I was very cocky I mean I basically said no it's either the editorship or I'm going home yeah and they dithered and said we just put him in I said okay well I'm going back to London right and I leapt on a plane went back to London and then I felt I'd completely blown it I sat in London you know thinking still had editor the tatler not or no I'd left the tatler in the meantime I I had got restless you know I tend to get restless and jump out of things you are a restless I'm a restless person I jumped out of Tatler to be, go back to writing and kind of regretted it immediately. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's a power base. Because right? it's a power base. And I realized I was back to exactly what I felt before, which is I was asking editors if it was okay to write this piece. And sure. they would say, well, I don't know. Yeah. What about doing this other piece? You know? Oh, Tina, I don't like working for people either. <laughs> no, I just didn't like it at all. Yeah. So I sat in London thinking, God, I, I choked. You know, I should have mm-hmm. just stayed there in New York and kind of thought I'd blown it. But then I suddenly get this call 
to ask if I would come to New York for an interview. I was just about to go to Barbados with my husband on mm-hmm. holiday. So I arrived from Barbados to go to New York for this job interview, mm-hmm. you know, with a kind of suitcase full of cheesecloth bikinis. Mm-hmm. Had the interview with Cy Newhouse. Did you wear a cheesecloth <laughs> Because that would be Almost. wrong today. Just so you know. It would be wrong. It might have <laughs> might have been very successful, but it yeah. might have been wrong. But, you know, Cy Newhouse, who owned Condé Nast, and Alexander Lieberman, his great editorial director, who mm-hmm. was a very sort of Douglas Fairbanks yeah. character, very Russian. Mustache, Russian. Mustache, you know. Fantastic. Painter. Sad. N- new Picasso, all of that. Yeah. They were sitting there, and they interviewed me for this job, and they basically said, you know, it's yours if you want it. Mm-hmm. And... I, then I didn't choke. I said, I, I wanted it. They said, okay, well, you have to start right after Christmas. Right. So I went back to spend Christmas with Harry in Barbados, and he was fantastic. He said, you've got to do it, have to do it. You know, I'll figure something out. Now, let's say who Harry is. Your husband is one of the greatest newspaper editors in British history, right? I mean, really. Yeah. No, and actually, famously Harry, fired. Fi- oh, he's wonderful, yes. Yeah. Harry, Harry was editor of the Sunday Times, very celebrated. In fact, he's his newspaper appears in 2000 voted him the greatest newspaper ever which I thought was sort of wonderful and you know he had uh, he was the Ben Bradley he was the Ben Bradley of London Mm -hmm. Times Newspapers was bought by Rupert Murdoch Mm -hmm. uh, in 83 I think it was and he had a fi- famous noisy kind of front page of the fight with, with Murdoch because Murdoch wanted him to skew towards Mrs. Thatcher all the time. Mm-hmm. And he didn't. He wanted to keep his news values intact. And so they, you know, he fired Harry and Harry, you know, in a swashbuckling end, you know, kind of jumped out of there. And so in a sense, we were both sort of free and ready mm-hmm. to make our lives anew. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said to me, look, you know, I'll I'll come to I'll figure out something in America. You you take this job, which mm-hmm. is how he always is, which is wonderful. So hence the diaries. We're going to get to Daily Beast and everything else to talk. We're going to yeah. have to talk about yes, talk sure. later. But so you kept notes. These were these diaries or did you add to them? Because they're very detailed. They're, they were they were very much diaries. I mean, right. as as it is in the book is. Mm-hmm. Pretty much as it's written. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did shape it, you know, cut yeah, it, add to it, add to it, right. explain who people were. Right. But basically, these diaries are 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 contemporaneous. Are contemporaneous, and I wrote them in a kind of mad frenzy. Mm-hmm. You know, wrote, every night you would go. Not every night, but but a lot of nights. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I think by if, hand. By hand in mm-hmm. my sort of school books. Mm-hmm. I'd always been a diarist, you know, in the sense I'd always loved writing a diary. But mm-hmm. I, I also think because I was new in New York. And had so much to sort of, I was vibrating with the discovery of it all. Right. Uh, my husband was in Washington at that point because he got a job there first. U.S. News, yeah. At U.S. News. And he, uh, you know, so I was there on my own. I used to come in and I used to just think, I'm going to, you know, I'd sit down and I would scribble my, my diary. Right. Um, it also, most of my friends were in London, you know, so I had mm-hmm. sort of no one. I might have called, if I had been at home, I you might have. You did go out a lot. We'll I talk went about out that. a lot. But I also might have called a girlfriend and unloaded mm-hmm. what happened. But I didn't really have any girlfriends. So mm-hmm. I sort of sat and unloaded into my diary. And I'm so glad I did because yeah. those details are what really. Really you never, But you never remember that later. No, not you, at all. You really but don't. they're highly detailed. It's highly detailed. And of course, at the time. It also was this wildly social time. So after mm-hmm. about a year, uh, I was Reagan taken up. You know, when right. the magazine began to succeed, mm-hmm. I got taken up by sort of the New York swirl, mm-hmm. uh, which I always saw as the well, great. you were a character in it. Yeah, then. I was a character in it. And I also began to find it just, it just fed so many stories. It, mm-hmm. it, it, fed, it fed the leads. It fed the sources. It fed yeah. where I could get stuff. It fed, and also... The social world of that time, uh, you know, if you had a glossy upscale magazine, I mean, that was almost that was the sort of the fodder. Oh no, of the you page. were the center of everything. Yeah, the center of everything, and the and the magazine had to reflect that. You know, right. so it was partly that. It was a lot of it was the quest for that. You know, right. I would think 
oh, well, I don't feel like going well, but I might get a story. And I always right. did. Right. Always. You always did. But you get back to the, so you were, you decided to keep diaries that you later thought you would publish or just for yourself? No, I, I didn't really well, think about it. Well, everything's material, I mean, you know, as I, you I never, I never thought, you know, you, you don't write letters thinking they're going to be published. You know right. what I mean? I, I, I just did it because I, it was a need. It was a therapy mm-hmm. need, really. It was about unloading my thoughts and explaining myself to myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I would necessarily publish them. I thought maybe one day, you know, one sometimes thinks that. Right. I never really thought about that when I was writing them at all. Well, you wouldn't have because you wouldn't have known how successful it yeah. would be necessarily. Yeah. So the descriptiveness, one of the things that's really great about it is how much you throw people under the bus <laughs> in a really clever and incredibly true way. I mean, it's not, some people say, you know, I, listen, I get called mean all the time, which is fine with me. But it's not mean because it's, tr- it's truthful the way you're talking about these people. I find it, some of the descriptions just devastating, but accurate. You know what I mean? Like, ow, 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 ow. You have Denise Hale. Now Denise Hale's lying back in her chair with a program over her head and Prentice is drumming his fingers and blaspheming. Hale is an animal. Tina, an animal. These quotes that you have are amazing. <laughs> What are our spoiled concerns compared to the pain of all their loss? You know, like then you turn and very sad. And it's a really interesting revelation into your – that was at an AIDS event that Steve Rebelled did. You just continue – Carol in Rome. All these people – I remember these people of the day because you also chronicled them in Vanity sure. Fair. I mean, in a way, you know, one of my thoughts was here are these sort of 80s figures of boldface, you know, W Magazine, some of them. Mm-hmm. And are they going to still be interesting? And I decided that, you know – Ultimately, they're kind of all people in a novel, really. So right. in the yeah, same way that, you know, it, if, it, it's like Vanity Fair, the novel. This is like Thackeray's world. You know, ultimately, it doesn't really matter whether this person mm-hmm. was called Caroline Rome or what she's called. She's right. a character in right. New York there, she's in the type. time. She's, she's a type. type. She's Were a you type. worried about them not being, in, that's what I was saying, being interesting to today? Because I was utterly riveted to these people. I, I trusted in a sense that I could describe people of a kind and a type. So mm-hmm. you don't have to know or care, really, who Caroline Rome is. She's simply the anorexic socialite who is... Stary. Right, you know, stary? I think that's who, who stary. Yeah, eyed anorexic no, socialite. No, a better way to say with, it. It was with, really with, you know, I loved it. Elegant stary. shoulders, you know, who yeah. is sort of... Sailing, anorexic shoulders. Anorexic shoulders, who's sailing through the... Yeah, here the, it is. Whose hungry face and anorexic shoulders were on the other side of Harry. Her eyes were stary with strain and the quest for perfection. She wore... which looked worn down by French lessons and piano lessons and cordon bleu master taster menus for every dinner party she hosts. And it just goes, like, yeah. I felt bad for Carolyn Rome for the first time in my life. Well, I don't know. I think she might read it now and think, yeah, that is who I was. Because yeah. a lot of people yeah. actually have evolved beyond that. I mean, I like yeah. people like Gayfried Steinberg and Caroline Rome today because they're right. not those women actually anymore. Right. Somehow right. the time made them yeah. into those yeah. women. Yeah. And you, at one point, you were depicting your culture. The thought of the city gives me herpes of the brain, the hairdressing, the breakneck showers, the seething limo rides, the shouting over noisy restaurants, the ceaseless clamor of thirsty egos the umbrage and dungeon and fencing and foiling. <laughs> and yet I know that if I left, I'd want to get it back, and that's right. which was really yeah. interesting. So you were editing a magazine that sort of celebrated a lot of this, too, and sort of, that was very, not celebrated. We chronicled it. We chronicled it. We chronicled it. We photographed it. We had tongue in the cheek about it. We mm-hmm. get, we wrote about their murders and their, yeah. <laughs> and their, and their declines and their falls. There's a lot of murders. Yeah, a lot of murders. And Dominic Dunn, of course, was our star writer. And Dominic became yeah. the great sort of pulp fiction writer almost of Vanity Fair, writing about the rise and fall of, of decadent people. Right, exactly. And what were you thinking when you decided to take it? Because you had nothing to lose, right? 
Not really. No, I mean, I felt that I was, uh, this was my big chance. I mean, I've always thought, you know, I'm a girl of the arena. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I like I like to be in the action. Mm-hmm. You know, I do. Mm-hmm. I want to be the one who's sort of striving for the big thing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be sort of dialing myself back and thinking I'll take on something mm-hmm. I can handle. I like biting off things I can't, you know, I, more than I can chew. Where did you get that tendency, do you think? Um I don't have a lot of gusto for uh, uh, creative life. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm always restlessly looking mm-hmm. for something um, to uh, to create. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of ideas at any one time. That some of them bad, but some of them are good and right. turn out well. Um, and you know, I like the chance to be able to show it and express right. it. And you don't mind having them. I think the entrepreneurialism really shows. You know, in the thing, and you talk about that in the book several times. That being an entrepreneur and really trying different things, because a lot of what you were doing here was entrepreneurial, introducing well, new writers, introducing new concepts. Yeah, I think I think a good editor has to be an impresario. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you, you're an impresario of talent. It's, right. you know, you're the ringmaster. You have right. to be able to bring in the, bring up the music and bring down the lights and, you know, and, and have writers and editors and, and it all has to mix together. And a lot of, a lot of the sort of work of an editor, I think, is sort of casting. It's not just about I will hire a certain editor. It's about will this editor work well with this writer in this mix in mm-hmm. our office? You know, you need to cast these things. Right, and sure reflected re- of the time. And reflected of the time, time, yeah. And you did talk about that. And you said surely what the New Yorker needs is to be not just a writer's magazine but a reader's magazine because writers, unless guided and edited and lured out of their comfort zones, can go off-piste uh, into a drearily cul-de-sac of introversion and excess and entirely forget the questions of content and pace. Yeah, I do believe um, that. But so you, while you were doing this, what was really interesting to me when you were talking about it and the stressfulness is how much you're not easy on yourself either. There's a lot of stress. There's sort of you called it an addiction, stress being an, a self-inflicted an addiction. And I don't want to talk about feel-good stuff, but what carries a lot through this is the insecurity of high-ranking jobs like yours, mm-hmm. like that you were always feeling throughout this entire thing, despite the success just on the edge of disaster. I did. It felt I mean, like a startup. It yeah. felt like it, it, you know, it did. And well, in many in many ways, it was. Uh, I mean, I think you know because uh, yeah, I've always had that sort of precarious sense that mm-hmm. it could all blow up at any minute, and sometimes it has. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually think though that that's a spur, you know, to to, to do your best, isn't it? Right. I mean, a, a sense that. It, there's no such thing as cruising. I've right. never been good at cruising. Right. I really am but not good at it. But it was more than that. Like you were, you, you did an astonishing job on Cy Newhouse, and you were not kind to him, but you were not <laughs> unkind. I, you know what I mean? Like he just recently no. I died. had to. I, I had to manage up. I yes. had to a lot. Of you had a rich up. guy. You had a rich guy. I had a rich guy to deal with, but I became very, very fond of Cy. Mm-hmm. He was mercurial. He was mm-hmm. a fascinating character because yeah. he was had, he was a sort of reluctantly powerful man. You know, right. he was so shy and. And insecure himself, and short, and and nebbishy, and you know, I mean, he wasn't a guy who was a sort of threw his weight around, and he also enjoyed the stardom of his editors, which is very, very unusual. I mean, a lot of people feel competitive with the people they hire, mm-hmm. and when they start to become celebrated, get very sort of angry about it and feel jealous. Mm-hmm. That was never true of Sai. I mean, he was like a great Hollywood studio owner in the sense he liked his star studio of mm-hmm. all his big writers and his big editors, and he right. liked that very much. And he he actually loved my success, and he was right. very proud of it. But he was also very mercurial. I mean, he right. was constantly firing people, and prom- he was so restless all the yeah, time. Yeah, you often went to his office and didn't know what's going to happen. You were never knew what was going to happen. Something. And actually, we used to find that January was a very dangerous month because he would never fire anybody between November and Christmas because it was Christmas, it was holidays. Yeah. You know, you don't fire people on Thanksgiving, or whatever. But he was obviously restless. He was dying to do it. So he mm-hmm. would go off on always to Vienna, which he always chose. And he, I, I once said to him, you know, "Sai, why do you always go to Vienna?" He just said. 
where it's very boring there and people answer the phone on the third ring. Yeah. I thought was so <laughs> typically Sai, you know. Yeah. Such a Thurber character, really. Yeah, yeah. And then he would come back in January and he would just start firing everybody and like right. re- rearranging it all and three publishers would go out the door and two editors and he'd right. buy three things. And, right. And I suddenly thought was that was ex- the way he expressed his power. He couldn't express yeah. his power any way except doing that. So sometimes yeah. he got really kind of... Right. Really made a lot of pieces move very, very fast. And he often turned on you. Like, yeah, and he did, could. And like, let you down or... Yeah, well, he, he, he could. He could and... leave me hanging. He could also... Uh, Suddenly go off and do something which really irritated me, which is mm-hmm. having, you know, when I created Vanity Fair, he would just go off and launch like Italian Vanity Fair without speaking to me, mm-hmm. you know, and I would suddenly find, you know, some Italian in my office saying, you know, <laughs> hello, you know, hello where is the pictures for the April issue? And I would think, who are you? He says, I am, you know, the founder of uh, Milan of Vanity Fair. I'm thinking, you know, like, screw that. It's like, you know, why wasn't I even consulted here, right, you know? right. Right. Well, that's just the way Cy was. He was trying to make the point, it's mine, actually. It's mine. It's my yeah. ownership and yeah. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So one of the other parts that was that is the office politics. I think you'll get them beautifully. And <laughs> you don't know these people, but you start to get to know them and mm-hmm. how you put together and how to fire people. There's a lot about management in here, of yeah. like someone that wasn't on your side who was continuing to back be backbited from the old administration. Yeah. There's a lot of like, I learned a lot of management lessons right. from in here. I don't do that yeah. quite as much, but it well, was really interesting. I'm, I'm glad you say that, really, because I do sort of want to try to write a book in a sense as well. I, was, I did think about this when I was writing it, for sort of young women who are sort of coming into power, mm-hmm. how, how to come into power. I want to get to that later, the and, idea. And, uh, you know, you have to know how to manage. And, 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 and there are times when it's very difficult for me to do that, mm-hmm. particularly when I hired friends. Right. And one of the heroes of the book, actually, oddly, is the HR. Uh, the lady, yeah. yeah. What's her name, Pat? Pam, Pamela Van Zandt, who was known as PVZ. Yeah. And she was a very glamorous figure to me, oddly, because yeah. I'd never met a corporate woman before in London. We just right. didn't have corporate women in London right. at all in that era, in 1884, right. 85. And Pam Van Zandt, you know, I said she had smooth skin like Scandinavian furniture. <laughs> yes, you know, that's she, right. she seemed to be so blonde and perfect with her. Right. Just she was so corporate. I can't right. explain why. And she would, and when I got pregnant, um, she said to me, uh, when I told her I was pregnant, she said, that's very interesting. It'll give us a chance to test out our maternity policies. <laughs> Where did she? She actually, in the end, she went off to work at Estee Lauder. I, I, I'd like to see her again because she probably didn't realize she was going to become a hero to me. But right. she was because she had this huge binder of. And she people. also could turn on you at any minute. Like, could turn she on was you. not working for you. Uh, she was uh, working for she, him. She's exactly right. And she had this word that she would use, which coming from London, I also didn't understand, which was quote to have a conversation. Yeah. Now I didn't know that the phrase to have a conversation meant to fire somebody's ass out the door, right? <laughs> so she'd say, "Tina, would you like me to have a conversation with you know with Tracy?" And I go, "Oh, thank you. Yes, I'd love you to have a." conversation with her and maybe th- next thing I know you're like Tracy's out the door with her like you know, she's gone it's like a mob thing <laughs> it's like, like me to take care of it I'll take care of and it was great it was a sense of yeah, this yeah. wonderful person so we're going to get into the next section about what you think Benny Fermat and some of your favorite parts of it but one of the things that before we finish the section is that there's nobody that doesn't get both eyes of yours you know what I mean negative and positive which I think is really hard I don't think a lot of people do that when you were doing this, were you nervous about that idea? Because this is, I'm sure, pissed a lot of people off, I'm guessing. Well, I, I decided, it's, it's look, I... It's brutally honest. Well, I, I mean, I felt I had to be truthful or forget mm-hmm. about it. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I wanted, I mean, I feel actually that most of my book is really very affectionate in the end. Because, right. I mean, I loved the people that I worked with, but they frustrated me at moments tremendously, as I did right. them, without right. doubt. So right. I felt important to keep it in the moment where... 
you know, I mean, at one point I say about Cy Newhouse, you know, he has no balls at all, you know. But right. that wasn't always true at all about Cy. Right. I mean, I wouldn't say that my epitaph of Cy is he has no balls at all. I would say right. quite the reverse, actually. But, you know, in the moment, this is how you feel. Right. So either I was going to do a diary. Right. Which meant that sometimes it's you what know, you thought at the time. Yeah, it's like it a was teenage like girl or whatever. Swift insights, you know, right. radically you know, expressed, and then move on. And I wanted to do that, and I did obviously make a lot of choices about, uh, you know, is this gone too far? And I, I felt that I'd kept it on keel, and that most of the time people would come out of it thinking, you know what? There are a few people I've met who have had the negative and the positive. They have not been upset. They've felt. It was what it was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're here with Tina Brown. She was the former editor of Vanity Fair, and we're talking about her new book called Vanity Fair Diaries, 1983 to 1992. We're also going to talk about some of our other jobs. I'll finish up talking a little bit more about Vanity Fair and what it meant to culture when we get back. This episode is brought to you by MParticle, the customer data platform for every screen. And I'm here with co-founder and CEO Michael Katz. So Gartner says that customer data platforms are the most uh, buzzed about marketing technology topics in 2017. What is a customer data platform and why the sudden interest? Customer data platforms are about capturing user behaviors across any screen or system, creating a unified view of that customer, and then making it easy to connect that data to various types of marketing and analytics tools in real time, nonetheless. And so they're getting a lot of attention now because people are engaging with brands across lots of different screens and devices. And this shift has created a real challenge as brands try to map the customer journey and deliver these consistent and personalized experiences across all these different touch points. So when you think about it, what the CDP represents is CRM 2.0, not to overdo all mm-hmm. the acronyms. Mm-hmm. In the offline world, you could easily associate customer behavior to a known identity. There's been companies around for dozens of years who will capture your data at the point of sale and then right. map it to your name and address and so on and so forth. But in web, most of the data that was observable or, or capturable uh, was anonymous mm-hmm. and it was perishable because people delete their cookies all the time. Thank you, Mike Katz of MParticle. Where can we learn more about what you're doing? Go to www.mparticle.com or follow us on Twitter at mparticles with an S. Ah, thank you so much. Thanks. I'd also like to tell you about my other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask, which I host with Lauren Good from The Verge. Every Friday, we answer your questions about consumer tech. This week, we talked about passwords with Jeffrey Goldberg from Agile Bits. Jeffrey, what did we talk about really quick? We talked about passwords. We talked about password managers. We talked about password security. We talked about the future of passwords. We talked about lots of things. We decided that we should not use 123456 as our password, correct? Oh, yes. We came to that conclusion pretty early. Okay, good. All right. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. It was a great discussion. We hope you go listen to it. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcast. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're here with Tina Brown, the former editor of Vanity Fair. She's written a book called The Vanity Fair Diaries, 1983 to 1992. Tina, let's talk about the impact of Vanity Fair, because it really did usher in an age, the Reagan years, essentially. But it was the first time, it was very internet-y in the way it presented itself. It was fast, it was it was chewy, it was gossipy, it was something else. What did you think you were doing? Because you changed magazines. Like you're, you, you, People think you have the finger on the pulse of yeah. Well, zeitgeist. I wanted to do, you know, what I 
wanted to bring was that sort of high-low European approach to journalism, as it mm-hmm. were, into America. Because, and you talk about that a lot. In yeah, the book. I mean, the, the British newspapers actually do that high-low thing at their best very right. well. I mean, they also do cheesy, horrible things, but right. at their best, they do sort of mingle um, the sort of the gravitas with the sort of the, the uh, with the irreverence, right? And they put it all together with with a very sort of uh, raised eyebrow kind of skeptical tone, which mm-hmm. I've always liked very much. And I very much wanted to, to have something that was at the sort of front edge of the culture, but on many fronts. You know, one of the things that I happened when I launched Vanity Fair was that people for the first couple of years when we couldn't make advertisers come in, the major problem was they couldn't understand really what it was. I mean, right. They, they you kept, spent a lot of time in advertising oh, I spent lunches. so much time. That with, poor guy. That poor. I met that guy. <laughs> I don't know. Not him, but people like him. Yeah. I mean, I kept sitting in these meetings and they say, well, is it a fashion magazine? Is it a political magazine? Is it a, you know, a culture magazine or is it a this magazine? And I thought, it's all of those things. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember I had some little pitch, which sounds so ridiculous now, saying, it's a cross between, you know, The New Yorker and W and and, and The Connoisseur magazine. And I, was tr- <laughs> I was trying to make them yeah. understand yeah. it had elements it's of It's the Uber things. of. It's the Uber of, exactly. So I did a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And after a time, everybody said, oh, well, there was a gap in the market, which makes me laugh, you know, right. mirthlessly, right. because I realized how damn hard it was to create the market for it, actually. Right, which is essentially a general interest magazine. Yeah. Just Indeed. a general interest, general interest magazine. magazine. So, so you spent a lot of time doing the, what you were doing that, but what were you going for? This idea of high-low, or what was your aim? Um, my aim was to be, you know, in, in uh, at the front of uh, what everybody was talking about that right. month. I mean, right. that's really what drove the magazine. And by that, I really mean satisfying my personal curiosity. I mm-hmm. mean, it wasn't as if I was thinking, what are everybody else going to be talking about? Mm-hmm. It just interested me. Right. So I think... Most, you know, magazines of any worth, uh, when they first launch and create a DNA, they often then have subsequent editors who sort of follow that DNA in a different fashion. But I think founding editors, it's about satisfying their curiosity and sense of Of what story. you're interested what in. What is interesting to And me. you had a lot of wide-ranging interests. Yeah, and... I, I'm a very curious person. I have, a, I do have a wide range of interests. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm interested in politics, culture, you know, celebrity culture, crime. I mean, mm-hmm. this is my juice. Mm-hmm. And I followed my nose for the stories that really excited me. Right. And what do you think it did to magazines? Because it was sort of the last, you know, 92 was the beginning of the Internet, really. That's when mm-hmm. AOL started. That's where, And it was in its early stages, and you haven't gotten to where we are today. And I do want to talk about that. But you kind of created a – I'm trying to think of another magazine that was this important. There were others that were tried. JFK tried one. Premier magazine. Well, I think we built ink. on, but we built on the legacy of some great American magazines. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in between Vanity Fair of the '30s, you'd had Clay Felker's New York magazine, right, which New was Clay an Felker. incredible magazine. You had Jan Wenner's Rolling Stone, which was mm-hmm. another incredible magazine. You had Harold Hayes's Esquire. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so we had some great magazines, and I did right. draw from those. You know, right. I felt that Clay Felker was one of the very best at putting his finger on. You know the how Absolutely. we live, the how we live now story, mm-hmm. and I wanted that genre as well. I thought that um, Harold Hayes Esquire did some wonderful personal essays, and and uh, sure did. You know, and and I wanted those voices. Mm-hmm. I mean, Harold Hayes, I think, did an amazing job of realizing that a great magazine has to have this cabaret of voices that keep returning and and define the magazine. It was often swaggering dudes. Swaggering dudes. I mean, it was exactly right. It should be called Dude Magazine. Mailer. Mailer's (laughs) Uh, a lot in this book. Yeah, I love Mailer. I like him having Philip Roth there and him and not wanting to be... That's one thing that I really like about this book is because you think about these people 
people as icons, and then they're just regular people who have problems at dinner parties. You know, just which <laughs> yeah. I well, I mean, and they they sort of circled each other like these big cats. You yeah. Know, you too, no how, dinner party was too was too but you was made big enough for them. Utterly ridiculous that they were doing that. And you're like, oh, really? Oh, that's who they were. You know, in an odd way, I deal with a lot of the internet moguls who someday will be iconic, but. I knew when they were sort of like petty and small sure. and jerks. Yeah, no, well, it's fun. I mean, they argued over one desserts. of the things I think that's fun always is to see sort of very iconic people up close and realize right. they're so different on the whole to their massive imagery. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's somebody like, um, I mean, Warren Beatty was so kind of different in a way for the heartthrob yeah. image. I mean, he's kind of bookish and vague and absent-minded and rumpled and all the mm-hmm. things that you wouldn't think that Warren Beatty would be. And mm-hmm. Michael Jackson, on the other hand, who had such a sort of freakish uh, image, I found sort of shy and uh, and sort of otherworldly almost and told me that he, after his big concerts, he would go back to his hotel and read the short stories of O'Hara and, mm-hmm. and O. Henry. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? You know, mm-hmm. Michael Jackson reading New Yorker short stories, it seems so extraordinarily off-brand, mm-hmm. if you like. Mm-hmm. But who do we know who he is? I mean, the fact is that he did have another secret life, and it was completely different from the right. one that everybody wrote about. Right. So you run Vanity Fair, great success, and then went over to the New Yorker. Yeah. I want to go from beyond sure. this book. Sure. And, I, and the epilogue ends with me going yes. into this room full exactly. of men in, in, in horn rim glasses. Yes, exactly. Looking at me as if yeah. I'm about to put Demi And you had written about Bob Gottlieb, who mm-hmm. you didn't like, and his the way he ran that. Was that a mistake for you to do that? Or no, did you? I mean, I, I think yeah. the New Yorker was... Yes, you did change it. I changed it completely. And I you think did. the New Yorker was probably one of the happiest seven years of my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was... Uh, the stakes were so high. I mean, that mm-hmm. felt like Mission Impossible at the beginning. Right. But we did absolutely turn it around. Updated. I mean, we really... updated it and completely updated it. And, you know, I let go 50 people. I brought in another 50. And of the 50 I brought in, I brought in, you know, David Remnick, who, who mm-hmm. I hired uh, from the Washington Post, Malcolm Can't Gladwell. Callie Letter, Jeffrey Tubin, Jane Mayer. Uh, everyone you know, who's there now. Everyone is there now, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, they were a wonderful Do you staff. think you get credit for that? Because one of the things that has been through your career is, an un- I find it unfair. I, I know you're tough. I get that. Yeah. And I know you've rubbed people the wrong yeah. way. But it's really interesting how people talk about you versus a Remnick, for example. Well, Remnick himself, actually, has been very generous. Of course. He's he lovely. really has. I mean, he's he's always given me the sort of very sort of generous credit for having created the magazine that he now edits, right. and who, which he's done a brilliant job with. Right. Weird fact, I used to drive him home from the Washington Post. We lived near each other when was, we were fun. young. And I love how... <laughs> he's brilliant, though. That, that he's so brilliant. I mean, yeah. he, he and he's so versatile, too. Yeah. I mean, he was always the big star when I was there. And he. one of the things that was wonderful about Remnick is he was always the one who said yes. You know, there's always that moment when everyone's exhausted. You're going home, huge news break. Oh, my God, we're going to press. Somebody's got to write a new comment at the front of the magazine. Mm-hmm. And he would always be the person who'd say... I will do it. And he would sit down Doing and write seconds. something fantastic, you know. And so I love him forever, indeed, and a day. Um, but, you know, no, I think women on the whole tend to get, a, they have to, you know, I've said before that, you know, women have to be gold for a silver job. You know, mm-hmm. you, you sort of feel you have to tap dance faster. You have to, uh, you know, earn more awards, uh, have more, work 13 times harder to get half the amount of, of sort of pats on the back. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just true of so many women that I know, and it was probably true of me. Right. What were you trying to go for at The New Yorker? What was your goal? There? Well, The New Yorker, I wanted to wake up the Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, I was very, very clear what I wanted to do with The New Yorker. I felt that it was a literary jewel that had become overgrown with ivy and a sense of its own importance. Mm-hmm. And it had no visual 
appeal at all. I right. mean, one of my first things I did, as I did at The New Yorker, and I think, you know, people underestimate the visual Vanity sense Fair, of The New Yorker. Vanity and Vanity Fair. Fair. You know, a visual sense is very important if you're going to edit right. magazines. with. And in Vanity Fair, you brought in Annie Leibovitz, who was... Annie Leibovitz and Helmut Newton and, right. and Herberts and all those wonderful photographers, and we redesigned it. At The New Yorker, I realized it had to be redesigned immediately and very carefully. So I actually went back and studied the New Yorker of the 20s and 30s, which had been edited by Harold Ross. And people don't think about The New Yorker in those terms at all. They think of William Shawn's New Yorker because he was right. there for 40 years subsequently. A, a, a word church, if mm-hmm. you like. A with, word church, that's yeah, a great way to put it. With covers of sort of park benches covered in leaves, you know, mm-hmm. very decorous, <laughs> very timid. I mean, it's like, a, it's like an NPR sh- uh, yeah, song, you know. It, here in the village. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, the, the, the lowered voice. <laughs> And I felt, no, let's go back to the Harold Ross New Yorker because mm-hmm. Harold Ross had full-page cartoons, which mm-hmm. people don't realize. I mean, you know, Peter Arno and, and Charles Adams, mm-hmm. you know, who were the sort of really hot, social, you know, buzzing people of the day, mm-hmm. did these great full-page uh, drawings, covers that were far more kind of racy. I mean, you know, some of those um, Charles Adams, car- uh, uh, those Peter Arno covers were just so racy, you know. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to bring back some of that. And also it had a variety of, ta- uh, of lengths. You know, the mm-hmm. talk of the town was actually little snippets, really, that were like 250-word pieces, incredibly. Right. I never quite managed to get them back down to 250 words. I did want it. Right. Um, and I took a lot of the rubrics in the magazine, like um, uh, shouts and murmurs, murmurs and, right. and, you know, annals of, 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 of uh, you know, personal history and all of that. Yeah, annals of journalism. And, and I would bring those, and I brought all those back into the magazine. Mm-hmm. And sort of did a sort of um, retro facelift. Right. I took it back to a, a sort of sparked up version of the um, uh, of the Harold Ross magazine. And as a result, it ha- it looked exactly right, I think, as it, as it came out, which mm-hmm. was wonderful. So it had a very good reception straight away. What was away. different from doing Vanity Fair? Well, the main well, thing, Vanity Fair was like, la, la, yeah, like yeah, real yeah. loud. Well, 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 Vanity Fair was a big top. You right. know, it, it, was a, it was a big circus. You right. know, it was colorful. It was jazzy. It was, Weird. And the New Yorker was was the Sleeping Beauty. The van- it was a, uh, a you know a, 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 a tower, really, a, you know, an academic tower in a sense. Mm-hmm. And I love being able to go back to my own literary roots because I, when I began journalism before Tatler, I was writing for the New Statesman, which was really like a kind of sure, you know, it was a it was a literary weekly like the New Republic in mm-hmm. a sense. And I thought how exciting it was just to be able to work with writers on their stories and not mm-hmm. have to keep wondering about when Madonna's like was available to her Ritz's photo shoot. Yeah. Or, you know, I, got I didn't want to get into the celebrity wrangling. Yeah, exactly. I did all that. I was tired of celebrity wrangling. Yeah. I was a bit tired of the celebrity stuff in general. Right. And I thought I wanted to raise my game again. And, and you know, mm-hmm. and I did, I think. And, you know, we... You know, I, I when I went in, I thought I, I'm tired of these big, long pieces in The New Yorker. I'm going to cut them all back. But then... I realized that there were many pieces that needed a lot of length. And I mm-hmm. did a whole issue, a 50,000-word piece I did on, uh, uh, you know, ma- the ma- a massacre in El Salvador by Mark, Mark Dana. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I did a lot of pieces in The New Yorker which were very sort of profoundly, you know, were rich and long and mm-hmm. and actually did raise my game a lot with right. all of these great writers. So there's seven years, and then by the time you leave, the Internet is suddenly a thing. It is, but it wasn't so much... It was that offstage thing that was happening where mm-hmm. people were relegated to another room to do the, to yeah. do the you know, it was like yeah. all of these newspapers starting internet 
arms mm-hmm. and they would do things like I think the Washington Post like, put the, everybody across the river they did. in some they other site. They put everyone site. across the river. So yeah. it was like a black site. It was yeah. like some CIA rendition <laughs> because site. of union issues. You know, they just, yes. I mean, so the, so it to was work, union. It was because yeah, of to, union. To work on the digital stuff was to be sort of relegated. Yeah. you know, to mm-hmm. be the person who'd been yeah. kicked out of the newsroom. It's very metaphorical. Very literal. metaphorical. So, I mean, yeah, that stuff was happening, but it wasn't really what I did want to do, though. And and the reason I it really was the reason I left the New Yorker Mm -hmm. was I wanted the New Yorker to be more than a magazine. Mm -hmm. And being restless, you know, I did. I I went to Cy and I said to him, uh, you know, I want the New Yorker to be a book company, a a radio show, making uh, movies, making movies. And I had tried tried to persuade him to do that at Vanity Fair. In Mm -hmm. fact, I tried at the end of the 90s, at the end of the diaries, you, there's an entry where I talk about bringing in this terrific TV producer from ABC, Susan Mercandetti, and she had pitched doing a Vanity Fair show, and so mm-hmm. I never wanted to know. It was one of his most irritating traits, I have to say, was his, he, he would start to shake his head from side to side before you'd finish the sentence. Mm-hmm. So I used to learn to put everything in writing because it made me crazy when I'd say, so what I'd like to do is a TV show, and, and he'd start like nodding, <laughs> no, no, no. And I wanted to shake him and say, listen, you know. Yes, yes, yes. But he didn't. To hear. And so I left The New Yorker because, you know, along comes Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. who at that time is doing wonderful films. You mm-hmm. know, he was doing The English Patient. And other things, as it turns well, out. Well, as it turns, turns out. out. But, you know, what I saw was The English Patient was, was you yeah. know, was uh, Shakespeare in Love, was My Left Foot, was My Beautiful, everything I ever liked, mm-hmm. he seemed to have done. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, what you should be doing is a magazine that's also a book company, a movie company. So I thought, wait a minute, this guy's speaking my language. You know, he knows he's a rough diamond. Okay, it's not going to be easy, but I need that shaking up. I've been 18 years, you know, in the the French court of Louis XIV. Right. It will be exciting for me to now be in the entrepreneurial rough and tumble of this world. Do you think you're entrepreneurial? I do think I'm entrepreneurial, but yeah. I but I think I also need a business partner to then take all my, you know, spinning right. plates. Because you sort of, I mean, in that way, you did see the writing on the wall that it was going, that things were changing in, entre- you know, in terms yeah. of, of entrepreneur. You do write about it in the books. I'll find it in a second. But you you were in the top job in in magazine journalism, right. really, pretty much at the I New was. Yorker. I was. It was the best and job in journalism. a lot of people just desiccate in those jobs, as I can say, yeah, as far I as mean, I can I, tell. You know, I tend to feel that eight to ten years is about the right amount of time to be in one It's almost like running job. a TV show, right? Yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, unless you're going to expand it out. I mean, Remnick's been there longer, but he's doing all these other wonderful right. things, which are right. the things that I wanted, you know, suggested doing a long time ago. Although, of course, there were no podcasts in those days. Right. But, you know, so I left to go with Harvey and, of course, you know, immediately within 20 minutes, I realized that was a, just a giant mistake because... But yeah. although you had a, one of the biggest parties, a disastrous party. <laughs> Listen, that was the best party was of the in a freaking lot of 20th you know century. It was. It was well, so crazy. It was crazy. It was such a crazy... Yeah, we had this party at the Statue of Liberty where the whole thing went completely, you know, into the stratosphere. It was like, you know, the additional effect to, to what I would usually do, like amped up by 30,000 by having Harvey as a partner. Right. And, you know, so we, we took over the Statue of Liberty and we had these barges arriving. I called it the Ship of Fools, you know, yeah, because yeah. it was like every celebrity. It was an arc. It was like a yeah. Noah's Ark of, of, <laughs> of, of celebrity culture. Right, right. You know, in they came two by two, Madonna and Demi Moore and, and you know, Salman Rushdie and Henry Kissinger. You know, it was, it was completely oh, man. He floats around your book. He floats lot. around. And there was no electricity on, on the Dina, island. Dina, Dina. Yeah, Dina, Dina. to the Congo. <laughs> I know. 
So it was like that, and we had all these, you know, these Chinese lanterns hanging, and we had Macy Gay, who just, you know, was just hadn't really been discovered yet, being the band, and George Plimpton doing the fireworks. It was absolutely amazing. I have yeah. no regrets, all right, about except that, that it set me up for the most devastating collapse. Yes, know? it did. It certainly <laughs> did. So what? We'll get to Harvey Weinstein in a second, but what were you trying to do with Talk? I mean, because Talk was the first multi, you know, Martha Stewart was doing it. I the, love Talk magazine. Right. And, you know, one of the things that's very funny to me on this book tour, even, is that there are certain people. There's always like one woman and four, one person involved comes up and says with a copy of Talk Magazine mm-hmm. and says you know I want to tell you that I love Talk Magazine and I want to throw my arms around them and say you know <laughs> join, my, join my lifeboat yeah. um, it, no I mean I had a very very strong image of what I wanted to do with Talk right. which was I saw it now I now wanted to do what I thought it was a, I was obsessed as I do get obsessed with European news magazines mm-hmm. right I love magazines like, like the Perry Economist? Match okay no Perry, oh, Perry Match, Match okay Stern in mm-hmm. Germany um I love those magazines slightly thinner paper mm-hmm. and and covers with multiple images right. on them right so you'll have four images you won't have a big fat celebrity face you'll have you know a picture of uh you know as it were Mark Zuckerberg and a picture of uh as it were Ashley Judd and a picture right, right, you know right. you'd have the zeitgeist on, on right. the cover and I, I love that idea. Nobody was doing that, actually. And I liked having it not perfect bound, but with a staple through it. I had a very strong feeling of what it should be. And I wanted it to be somewhat oversized, like mm-hmm. Parry Match was. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a Dutch magazine called Twen in the 60s, actually, that was my model, which was one of my obsessions. Mm-hmm. So I hired this. The whole concept was to do that. I did not want to do Vanity Fair again. Otherwise, why would I have yeah. left? And I didn't want to do The New Yorker again. Otherwise, why would I have left? I had this other idea. And so I, but Harvey did not like that idea. I mean, mm-hmm. it turns out it was a classic thing. I was once told by the director, Sam Spiegel, he said, you have to make sure you're all making the same movie, right? right so right. everybody That's goes blithely on their way. Right. Everybody has a different vision in their mind. It turns out Harvey thought I wanted me to do another Vanity Fair. And he really mm-hmm. wanted me to do another Vanity Fair. I then realized as I got into it to, to, to grow his own power base, mm-hmm. to assign stories that would then keep him from writing about him and to basically have a media power base, which enabled him to wield power over journalists. Even more, right. Yeah, yeah which we know now why he was so keen to wield power over journalists. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was really was the, the clash right mm-hmm. from the beginning is that he wanted... And you hadn't discussed this in advance? Well, I thought I had, but he obviously wasn't listening. You know, the fact right. is people don't listen when they want something. Right, right. So when the first issue came out and was absolutely huge success. I mean, it was the reverse of... What was on the, what was the Oh, cover? it was an amazing issue. It's still an amazing issue. It had I'm sure I have it. The so. scoop, uh, it had a Hillary Clinton, and we had the first interview ever given before or since about Monica Lewinsky. Uh-huh. We had uh, George Bush, uh, candidate George W. Bush, by Tucker Carlson, who was mm-hmm. our political writer. Our political writers were Jake Tapper and, politi- uh, and Tucker wow. Carlson. Wow, wow. Um, in their early days, mm-hmm. we had uh, a, a great uh, little picture of I think it was um, it was a it was a, it was a murder. Mm-hmm. I know that typical of me, but it was mm-hmm. I think oh I know what it was. It was the uh, the uh, it was an investigation into the into the death of Princess Diana in mm-hmm. in the new lawsuit against right. the Al Fayed. So we had this wonderful mix on the cover and lots of scoops, and we made an enormous news, particularly with the Hillary piece, which mm-hmm. ended up being one of those sort of huge sensation pieces because mm-hmm. she said the famous words, it was a sin of weakness about mm-hmm. Monica, about uh, Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. which went everywhere, sin of weakness. Um, and so that was absolutely huge. And then uh, after that, you know, we had to kind of keep following up, and I had spent probably way too much of my, uh, you know, story capital on the first issue 
But mostly, Harvey hated the way it looked, and he wanted me to turn it into Vanity Fair. So we had these battles, which really kind of destabilized me as an editor. I mean, it, right. it, because I wasn't used to having somebody interfere. I just wasn't right. Hand, I didn't handle that. And he was well. able to do that. What he could, you know, he he would berate you, me, yeah. you know, and he would continually bully and shout and want what he wanted and and humiliate and and you know denigrate and it's hard, hard, very hard mm-hmm. to keep your focus when you're right. working in that kind of situation. And, right. and you know, I began to kind of lose so my sense of twenty what it was. minutes in. You were like, oh. yeah, twenty minutes in, I I hated it. But you know, I had an amazing team there. I mean, I had Maya Rashan, who's absolutely fantastic. I had Jonathan Marler, who went to the New York Times, and Daniel Matoon, who went to the New York Times, and Sam Sifton, who became the New York Times food. Yeah. It was everybody at the New York Times, actually, yeah. after we folded. Yeah. So they were an immensely good team. And it was a great magazine, I think. But uh, the battle about what it should be began to afflict the pages. I mean, you could see that it lost focus. And right. um, Harvey won. I mean, he said, you have to make it glossy and you have right. to make it. And I never liked the way it looked after that. I liked the way it looked when it came out. When it came out. Mm-hmm. All right. We're here talking to Tina Brown. We're talking about Talk Magazine and Harvey Weinstein, of all things. When we get back, we're going to talk more about that and also how she moved into the Internet with the Daily Beast and where she thinks things are right now for magazine and regular journalism. Today's show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, and they have a question for you. What if hiring could be easier? What if it were more streamlined and less time-consuming? So even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job on over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. One more time to try it for the low, low price of free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. Today's show is brought to you by HP, which has a new podcast they'd like to tell you about. What does machine learning have to do with autonomous driving? How do you build a powerful open source community? Will the cloud really consume the world? Tune in to Stack That, a new podcast from Hewlett Packard Enterprise, to dive into the world of emerging trends and learn how you can leverage this tech for the benefit of your business. Each week, our hosts Byron Reese of GigaOM and Florian Leibert of Mesosphere will tackle a new topic with the help of guests from Airbnb, Google, Confluent, and other industry experts. Check out Stack That on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and news.hpe.com. And make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the latest episodes. We're here with Tina Brown. She's the former editor of Vanity Fair, and her book is called The Vanity Fair Diaries, 1983 to 1992, where she presided over probably one of the most successful relaunches of a magazine in history, I think, one of them, one that became one of the most iconic magazines for sure. And later she went on to edit The New Yorker Talk Magazine, which we've just been talking about, and The Daily Beast, which is an online publication. Let's finish up with Harvey Weinstein. Were you, I I think everyone's asking this thing, like, were you aware of these things? 
I wasn't, you know. I mean, ultimately, I didn't hang with Harvey. Mm-hmm. You know, I really didn't. And I, you know, it was after hours. It was in his office. I mm-hmm. never, I never hung with Harvey. And you hadn't heard the rumors, or everyone. Had. I ne- no, I, I had not heard those rumors. No, mm-hmm. I mean, I heard. I, I assumed that he was someone who it was girls galore, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never saw it actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And w- w- were you surprised, Richard, recently when you just well, you, you had dealt with him on a yes, bullying I, I, level, I, a berating I, level. I wasn't surprised. On one level, and yet I was very surprised on another. I, I, I had no idea it was so assaultive that it mm-hmm. was so um, that there was rape. You know, mm-hmm. I really didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought he was just a, a gross, uh, you know, woman, sort of womanizer. I didn't think that he was a, an abusing, an abusive person in that right. sense. I just right. didn't see it. it. It was a shocking thing. I mean, I've been shocked again and again. What didn't shock me, though, was the fact that he had ex-Mossad agents because Harvey was so paranoid. It was one of the things that I first noticed about him. I thought, why is this man who seems such a kind of big uh, daddy warbucks, yeah, yeah, mogul, he, he was you, you, the slightest neg- negative comment, anything, Mm-hmm. You know, if you said that, you know, he arrived late and seemed as sleepy, mm-hmm. he would go ballistic and, mm-hmm. and be, you know, conducting sort of huge kind of, you know, inquiries as to who said this and how they said it and mm-hmm. fire the person who would remotely. It was really extraordinary how right. thin skinned he was, right. which speaks to a deep insecurity. Trumpian. That, <laughs> Trumpian. Right. Funny enough, I've said that about him yeah. is that, yeah, the person he most reminds me of is Trump. Right. This kind of. Bizarre, right. mountainous. Who you wrote a lot about in a yeah. lot of your magazines, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we'll talk about Trump in a second. But so you were here, and how many episodes, how many issues did you put out before it just went? Uh, there was two years of issues. Two years of yeah. issues, and what happened? I mean, what happened is uh, what happened actually was that it got horrible uh, Schadenfreude press, you mm-hmm. know, uh, yeah, uh, uh, and uh, kind of relentlessly so. And there yeah. comes a point where. Um, you know, when it it's just endless, it, it affects advertisers, actually. Mm-hmm. So I was constantly trying to battle that. But actually, we had got beyond that by the second year, and it was really looking much better in terms of the whole business picture. Mm-hmm. But then 9-11 happened, and all the advertisers, as you probably remember, sort of mm-hmm. went into this hideous kind of wait-and-see mode where mm-hmm. they just didn't want to commit uh, right. to budgets. Which makes sense. And, you know, we were... Uh, you had to be part of a big company, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to be able to sustain that weight, mm-hmm. if you like. And so we were facing a lot of losses. Mm-hmm. And basically, Harvey just didn't want to wait any longer and he pulled the plug. I mean, I don't fully blame him, really. I mean, it was he was going to have to lose money and mm-hmm. had lost money. And, and you know, but he, he also was a factor in the losing money. So, right. I, you know, I, I, my major sadness was I thought it, it was really a very good magazine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, so you then found yourself having edited all these yeah, things, and I was definitely at, there was a lot of shot and fight around that yeah, magazine. It was definitely. unusual. I was really bitter. Really, brutal. people were quite cruel. Almost, they were rooting for it to fail. I understand. I'd had two successes, right? And you know, and you were tough too. And you I was tough. I'd made punches. enemies. You know, yeah. I'd, I'd rejected a lot of pieces. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that that starts to stack up, and then when mm-hmm. things go wrong, they they mm-hmm. pounce. But I was okay. I went off for two years, and I wrote my book on Princess Diana. Diana. Mm-hmm. And that was a wonderfully uh, sort of salving thing to do. You know, it was back to who I was. I Mm -hmm. had a wonderful time with my children. I wrote my book. I was thoroughly sort of healed by that whole process. So by the time I finished the book, Barry Diller, who'd been calling me while I was writing it, Mm -hmm. uh, wanted me to come work with him and and start something online. Mm -hmm. And I kept saying, no, I'm writing my book on Diana. I'm not an online person. I don't want to do it. I'm done with all of that. You Mm -hmm. know, I really didn't think I was going to go back to editing, actually. 
And he said, no, come on. When I finished it, he said, come in and do this. He said, you know, if you doesn't, if you don't like it, it doesn't matter. You can try and create something. Maybe I'll like it and do it, or I won't like it. But let's just, you know, no strings. Just come in and and create something online that has a kind of your kind of sensibility with news. Right. So I came in, and at first I I didn't think I was going to like doing this at all. But I sat with the uh, Brandon Ralph at Coden Theory, who is an incredibly talented yep. uh, digital designer and conceiver of of, of uh, online. Um, it's very Coden Theory site. Yeah, it is, and. I wanted to do something that felt like a glossy upscale tabloid. Mm-hmm. I felt how exciting it would be to have the tabloid flavor of energy, uh, but 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 designed in a way that was kind of glamorous, mm-hmm. and yet also was very intelligent and had um, uh, dishy. It was very yeah, dishy. dishy and intelligent at the right. same time. Again, the high low thing, where the, when the high yeah. stuff was very very good, and you had people like Simon Sharma writing for it, and. But then the the dishy stuff was also really fun, right? And I, I wanted, and I called it the Daily Beast because that was the name of the uh, Fleet Street newspaper That's and right. Evelyn Wall's novels, and I wanted it to have that sort of retro tabloid, scoop, right? fl- yeah. yeah, scoop thing. And I mean, I, I think it had a nice identity from the beginning, and I think the title was one of the reasons actually, because it right. immediately said this is antique, this is a little bit retro chic. Mm-hmm. And I did everything the opposite for talk. I said, you know, I don't want to even say this is coming out. It is the opposite of the right. Liberty Island uh, Noah's <laughs> no Ark. Party. No party. <laughs> Absolutely no party. We will launch this. We've got to get it out before the 2008 election so we can right. ride that wave. Right. But we will just sneak it out. One day we'll post. Right. Were you a digital person? You would watch Ariana. Like, I guess he, she's in your book yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, I love I your depictions yeah. of her. I mean, Ariana yeah, was a, a very old friend. I love her to death. I mean, I've known her for 40 years. I mean, I've known her since she, she was, was at Cambridge and I was at Oxford, right? We came here together in a sense. And, and you know, when she came to lives. Uber, they were all making fun of her, like as usual. And it was, I was like, don't turn your back on her ever. 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 Oh, no, she's smart and she has so much <laughs> she, EQ. You will be eaten and you will enjoy it in some she's weird strange amazing way. she yeah. really well is. she's something yeah and so uh yeah i watched that i thought that was incredibly uh smart yeah. of her mm-hmm. and i also know that you know i've always wanted to edit a newspaper so mm-hmm. in a way this was my chance to edit a newspaper right but it, you had no digital background were you, were you what did you think of the internet at the time at the time i was rather scared of it you right. know i kind of thought facebook that, had just started yeah really, i was kind know, of afraid yeah. of it but then by the from the first moment that we posted our first piece and for the first time that I realized that designing it with, with Brandon was very exciting. It was so mm-hmm. responsive, you know, mm-hmm. and, you, and you could create things that were just so so kind of expansive, expanding on what I had ever done before. Right. That I love that whole design process. And from the moment we posted our first few pieces, I was totally hooked. Right. Within a few uh, days, we published uh, very early on a piece by Christopher Buckley where he endorsed Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And of course, being from the Republican Buckley family, mm-hmm. it made tremendous news. And I remember thinking it was like, it must be like going fishing and getting a salmon on a hook or something. Mm-hmm. Because you suddenly felt the tweaking and the tweaking of the internet and, and the explosion of traffic. Mm-hmm. And you, we watched the chart beat thing going yeah. right up, you know, yeah. right more Did you understand and more how more more quick more. the cycles were? Because you had been on a magazine cycle. One of the things I've always noticed about old media people is like, they're so slow. Like, so, I can't, yeah. like, so, and they're like, wow, that was fast. I'm like, what? No, it wasn't. Like, I move very quickly. Very quickly. Well, I've always been very speedy. Yeah. In fact, the yeah. criticism of me is that I'm tearing things up. I'm speed. you know. Yeah. So actually, for me, it was finding a medium that was commensurate to my own impatience, mm-hmm. actually. I mean, mm-hmm. it fitted very well with my impatience. And what I came to love was being able to sit in a, like, in a cafe with my Blackberry, as I then had, and just, like, be reading, 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 and assigning, 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 mm-hmm. and finding how receptive 
people were mm-hmm. if you could get them about the things they were interested in at the moment that they were interested in them, mm-hmm. which is the great joy of being a digital editor because you're literally sitting and reading and you're thinking, I know who will have something to say about that. Mm-hmm. you know, And I know who will be sitting there thinking, I'm really just boiling to say something. Is there anything that get surpri- them at six o'clock in the morning. surprised you about internet editing? I was surprised at the quality of what I could get, mm-hmm. frankly, for very tiny sums of money. I mean, mm-hmm. we only had a budget to pay 250 bucks a piece. Mm-hmm. But if you can tap into the passions of writers, that's what I love about writers. I mean, they what the, their desire to say something and say it in a place where other people they know will read it. I mean, the great important thing for writers, I think, is to know you're being read and that you're being read by people who you respect. Mm -hmm. So for us, we had to create in the Daily Beast, and I think we did, an intelligent playground. Mm -hmm. And in that intelligent playground, we could get anyone to come and play because they came to realize they got great traction. You know, they'd write a piece and they'd have 20 emails. And Mm -hmm. that's just worth everything. You know, writers feel orphaned right now. You know, they don't get any response. Nobody ever replies to their emails. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most editors really, you know, they don't really care, it seems. You know, Mm -hmm. that's unfair. There are plenty of editors who do care. But, you know, there's a sense that writers and editors themselves are so harried Mm -hmm. by the world they're in. They're so pushed around and so kind of doing things that are in too much with less money. And so they're often quite, you know, they don't get back to people because they're right. hassled and all the rest. So writers feel very, um, they, they feel very orphaned, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, so I think if you can show love to writers and if you can respond quickly and say, great piece, can you do right. this? It's amazing what people will write for you. So what do you make of what has happened in the content space around the Internet? Because really all the action is happening there now, even yeah. the New York Times, even all of them. Well, well, how I mean, do you look, look at it? So you left Daily Beast because? I left Daily Beast because after, uh, what it was, six years, I think five, six years, again, I felt I had launched there uh, mm-hmm. a new uh, com- conference, you know, the yeah. w- Women in the World Summit. Mm-hmm. And I got very absorbed by that. And mm-hmm. I felt that Women in the World Summit is what I wanted to develop and mm-hmm. that it was enough of doing this, uh, the Daily Beast. And I wanted to kind so of develop the lives. It's it is, it's exhausting, exactly. Yeah. And I, I felt... I wanted now to do something that that enabled us to have deep conversations at a lesser uh, uh, adrenaline, you know, turnover. But mm-hmm. you know, and that's all. It has its own exhaustions, as you yeah, well know. Yeah, I do know. I do them all. Just <laughs> you do them all. I know. That's what's so impressive about you. Um, but, what, but when you think about what's happened, like there's a couple of people I think who really, at least they're trying to shift. Ariana was one of them. You're mm-hmm. one of them. There's a couple of people that do it. Others are very are still. Hoping this internet thing goes away, it feels like that's no. The internet's doing. completely one. Screens of no. one. I mean, it's all one. I mean, I think. So, uh, how do you look at it? What has it done to journalism? What has it done to magazines? Well, look, I, I, I am very uh, angry and upset about the way that advertising revenue has been essentially, you know, pirated by, um, you know, the the Facebook, Google world, mm-hmm. without nearly enough give back. No give back, really, to the people who create those brilliant mm-hmm. pieces that are posted mm-hmm. all over their platforms. Mm-hmm. And I think it's high time that they gave back to journalism. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do think that they should create a huge journalism fund, mm-hmm. you know, f- for journalists, which yeah. could fund local journalists, can fund new periodicals. That I don't can think they care whatsoever. They have no. They have no interest. No, I realize that. I'm just telling yeah. you what I think they should right. do. Right. But they won't. They want all the money and none of the that, responsibility. Exactly right. They Being want a media the company in the modern age. That's exactly right. It's is is. Oh, we're not a media company. We're a quote platform. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, guess what? I mean, this when when you don't have human beings who have judgment, who have taste, 
who have a sense of responsibility, you know, you can have any old Russian hacker like dishing it out to the American right, public. which is what happened. But they do make the point that there's so many billions of transactions happening at any one day. They can make the point all they like, but yeah. we well know that opinion forming influential content when it's you know it, it's it's very hard to find and support and and have an impact with mm-hmm. i think the major problem is with so much there isn't enough impact for the things that are important mm-hmm. and people don't know what is important or where to find it so it doesn't wash to basically say you know there's so many transactions everybody can find it i mean it's a needle in a haystack for so many people what do you think they're doing to this let's end talking about trump like and what do he's you know the tweeter in chief essentially has used these platforms very deftly. Russians are no. He still uses them. A lot of our discourse is happening, becomes fractured. There seems to be no intelligence in any of it anymore. Do you, like a lot of times these magazines and news shows used to lead the way. You know, there was a cohesiveness. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was a a monoculture of people of New York, largely white people, largely men. But what do you think is happening now in this space? Look, There's I, some excitement, but look, at the same I, time. I, I welcome, you know, the diversity of voices, and I welcome the way the uh, digital media allows so many people who would never find a way in to express themselves. And many great, you know, voices are coming out that, that wouldn't have had that chance. And also that it's convening power in terms of making things important is mm-hmm. a fantastic addition. Uh, what I miss, though, is the... Uh, the, the, the ability to marshal an audience around an important subject and know that you can speak to that big audience and know that that audience is going to understand that this, because you're speaking to them, that it is actually an important and believable avenue. Mm. And that's what I think has greatly been lost, which is why people are, you know, they're, they're so confused about what's happening in the world and they're very stressed, actually, because half the time people don't know what is true. Mm. I also am very concerned by what I think of as the flash mob of social media, that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that a flash mob can suddenly form very, very quickly mm-hmm. around a person. And wow, you know, suddenly their reputation is shredded mm-hmm. and they're sent like spinning, you know, by uh, a descent of a thousand people like writing abusive stuff about them. And it's, it's, a, it's a frightening thing, actually. It can mm-hmm. actually lead to, I think, a lot of stress and a lot of um, dangerous emotions, uh, which, you know, can ultimately could lead to violence. And, uh, you know, I think we've also seen the empowering of a lot of uh, very sort of uh, delinquent voices, in a sense, Mm -hmm. that in the past would be some crazy person muttering in a bar. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a huge community around those crazy. Roger Stone. Right, exactly. Uh, You know, and and they have influence and power and they can Mm -hmm. multiply and, and so on. And I think that adds to the toxicity of the culture. So there's a lot of things to worry about. What would you do if you were... How do you think Trump uses it just in that regard? Well, Trump is... A, look, look, let's face it. I mean, Trump is a brilliant user of, of the medium. Mm-hmm. And one thing I think you've got to salute Trump for is he really understands how to express himself in a memorable, pungent, mm-hmm. and uh, instantly uh, communicating way. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he says things that people remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's gifted. You have to recognize that. He mm-hmm. is good at that. Unfortunately, you know, he's also able to just put absolute you know, crass mendacity into the world mm-hmm. and, and has millions of people believing it mm-hmm. because he has so many followers. I haven't heard mendacity since <laughs> I saw a Tennessee Williams play. <laughs> mendacity. Mendacity. Yeah. Mendacity. Um, that means lies, people who need to look it up on Google. So let's end talking just briefly about what, if you were Tina Brown, 25, enfant coming out of Oxford today, where would you go and what would you do? I think I'd go to India. And I want to know what you're doing next. I think I would go to India. Yeah? Yeah. Why so? 
because India is just full of vibrant literary culture. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely fabulous, India. I mean, mm-hmm. it's got so many. It still believes in print. It's mm-hmm. got a lot of really terrific literary magazines. Um, it has a, uh, a just a kind of collective intellectual uh, debate class still in a way that's just exciting to be around. It's very mm-hmm. exciting, India, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 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 got a still sort of discovering how to express things in, in you know online in a way that's very interesting. So I might go there, but on the other hand, I might find living in Delhi at 25 rather dangerous. <laughs> yeah, but there's a story in the New York Times saying how bad the air is yes. in India right now. If you were to work in an internet company, where would you work? I think I want to work for Recode. Oh, no, you can't do I that. would. I don't have enough money, to No, 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 I would. Um, I want to go where, where I felt there was a pungent, you know, strong editor who could teach me things. Oh, no, I think you're no, doing just fine. No, no, I'm not. I mean, in, in uh, the main thing that... that, that the young people who I speak to want is they really want to attach themselves to somebody smart who can mm-hmm. teach them something. Mm-hmm. Because so many kids now are just told to kind of like sit there at their screens and just post. Tight. Right, yeah, and just And tight. they don't know whether what they wrote was any good. Nothing. They're uh, raised, I call them raised by wolves. They're raised what. by wolves. And yeah. so they're longing to have somebody say, I had, Mentorship. I was lucky. I mean, I had, you know, I, when I first wrote, I was writing for the editor of the New Statesman who was so high, mm-hmm. severe. Mm-hmm. You know, he would write this stuff. This is like not good enough. Like this sentence doesn't make any sense. Like what are you trying to tell me? And it was scary, and I loved him, mm-hmm. you know, because he really he taught me. Right. So, of all the internet companies, which one do you feel is the most important when you think about from a journal? From the what um, is the one? Let me that see you... what I'm interested in. Well, I, I you know I still read my, my Daily Beast every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I like what Axios are doing. I think mm-hmm. I admire what they they've started. Um, I like. Um, uh, I like all kinds of things. I like French, France 24. I like reading that. Mm-hmm. I love. Um, what else do I read every morning? I read so many things every day. Uh, I like um, I like Vox. Actually, mm-hmm. I think it's a very yeah. smart uh, a very smart site. Um, I, I I think the New Yorker are doing good stuff now online. Um, the Washington Post I I now read every day, which Democracy I Democracy dies in darkness. That's Democracy a great story. How darkness. they decided to do that. I know it's wonderfully sort of Shakespearean. Yeah, I love it. There there was they tested it. It was supposed to be democracy. Something it was something else that was shorter, and then they decided to just go whole hog, whole like very dark, and you know I think it's great. It's yeah, me too. It, it go go all in. Yeah, exactly. So when you think about who's going to be important in journalism over the next couple of years, if you had to look at all the lot, you know, obviously Apple's getting into stuff, YouTube, Google, Facebook. Do you see any of them being? helping journalism move forward? Well, I have I have sort of high hopes about what Apple might do, mm-hmm. actually. Because, Why? well, I think that Apple has always had such a high sense of quality. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's always been, uh, you know, Steve Jobs was a typographer himself, so he mm-hmm. always cared about design and he cared about... Th- there's a sense of excellence there mm-hmm. uh, that has always been about, you know, uh, rejection of the mediocre. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that they might, you know, step into being to do something really good in journalism because Mm -hmm. ultimately we can't keep on just impoverishing and draining journalism as Mm -hmm. we are. I mean, it's tragic to see how great journalists, I mean, really good ones are unable to scarcely get by Mm -hmm. that people who are earning, you know, a living wage are Mm -hmm. having to kind of scrape together three to four gigs, you know, to earn just about the nut to send their kid to college. Certainly changing. It's certainly changing. And what are you doing next? You write this book and then what? 
Well, you know, I, I'm I'm growing my Women in the World platform. Women in the World I, platform. I, yeah, I, I love doing it. I have mm-hmm. a very talented staff, you know, who are putting out very strong journalistic live material. So I love doing that. I'd like to kind of expand that, the voices of that, I think, mm-hmm. now, to, so that you see the world through the eyes of women, mm-hmm. not as a kind of um, woman's issues, sort of, sort of, you know, right. I don't want to do that. No. I, I, but I, I love hearing from women who you don't normally hear from all over the world about the stories of the day, and right. that's what I'd like to do. And would you start a company, another company, another magazine? I never say never to anything, quite honestly, you know. I mean, I'm a news junkie, so I miss that, I suppose. I mean, I I miss actually the the Daily Beast energy more than I expected to in the end because it was actually a great outlet for my news gene. Yeah, you say that in the book. It all suggests the need for an entrepreneurial financial independence that are not at the mercy of the whims of our masters when you were Mm. talking about Cy Newhouse there, but the idea. No, no, I think that's absolutely right. Will there be another magazine? Who knows? I don't. It wouldn't be. A, I don't think it'd be a print magazine anymore. I've decided that when I took over Newsweek, I'd, it was a mistake. Oh wait, I forgot Newsweek. Yeah, well, you, you do oh well to goodness. do that. We, we, we again, we had the most amazing stuff in that magazine, but it was like you know having an affair with your ex-husband. You know? I mean, ultimately, it was like, what am I doing back in print? It doesn't work to have this business model oh, doesn't man. work. How did they get you to do it? Oh God, I don't know. I was I, I was deluded, but I do wish. I tell you who I am excited about is Radhika Jones, the editor. Yes. Oh yes. Oh, we forgot. Let me yeah, finish I, on that. I think you know, I, uh, Radhika Jones is a really great choice. You know, mm-hmm. she's 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 a younger. You know, she's she's very literary background, but she knows how to put magazines together. I do believe that she'll bring a sort of fresh eye completely on Vanity Fair, which has fabulous DNA and is a wonderful magazine. But now it's time for it, the wheel to turn again and mm-hmm. for it to you know let in new influences. Right. I think that'll be interesting. She's she's a really interesting choice. And we were when I we had gotten a tip, but it was someone I couldn't figure out. Of course, this stupid person said, it's someone you can't figure it out. And I was like, oh, now I know. And I Mm -hmm. had a few clues. But it's a really interesting and surprising choice, which was kind of interesting. On that note, Tina Brown, thank you so much. You're a riveting person. I think you could do whatever. You could leave right now and leave the stage if you (laughs) felt like it. But I'm glad you're still working. Um, Again, we're here with Tina Brown. She's a former editor of Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, The Daily Beast, talk and i forgot newsweek sorry i'm gonna have to mention that in there and she's author of a new book that i really recommend it is very funny and uh sad and poignant and a really great testament to the times that she was editing vanity fair it's called the vanity fair diaries 1983 to 1992 and i just love it you should buy it i don't recommend that many books and this is one i do anyway tina it was great talking to you thank you for coming on the show If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with people like Eileen Chaikin, Sally Quinn, and Jared Leto. You can find all those episodes and more wherever you found this one or on our website, recode.net slash podcasts. Now that you're done with this, check out one of our other shows. On Recode Media with Peter Kafka, you'll hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Two Embarrassed Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Cadence 13, the company that distributes the show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. What does machine learning have to do with autonomous driving? How do you build a powerful open source community? 
Will the cloud really consume the world? Tune in to Stack That, a new podcast from Hewlett Packard Enterprise, to dive into the world of emerging trends and learn how you can leverage this tech for the benefit of your business. Each week, our hosts Byron Reese of GigaOM and Florian Leibert of Mesosphere will tackle a new topic with the help of guests from Airbnb, Google, Confluent, and other industry experts. Check out Stack That on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and news.hbe.com. And make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the latest episodes.